right? No. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, whose son is the Christ? Lord, we thank you for your word now. I pray that you would minister to our hearts as we study together. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly. And have your way in our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, the theme, as we have noted, is uh, Christ the King. That's the theme of the book of Matthew. And we have worked our way down to that section in 21 through 23, which we are finishing out this morning. Uh, the formal rejection of the king. Actually, we're not finishing out chapter 23 just yet, but a uh, formal rejection of the king. Uh, in our study in, in Matthew 22, we are still on Tuesday of what we call Passion Week that builds to the climax of the crucifixion. And uh, just by way of review, uh, on Sunday, we had the triumphal entry. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He observed what was going on at the temple. Then on Monday, uh, he cursed the fig tree, and he cleared, or cleared the temple. And then Tuesday, he explained the withered fig tree. And we have several temple controversies with the religious leaders, which is where we are in our study. On this day, as I say, there was a series of challenges put forth by the religious leaders at the temple in an attempt to entangle Jesus in his words and thereby discredit him. Well, after answering three questions they had regarding taxes, the afterlife, and what constitutes the greatest commandment, Jesus now presents a question of his own. It's almost humorous. Uh, they had brought their most intriguing gotcha questions <clears throat> their most intriguing gotcha questions to Jesus, but they really didn't even lay a finger on him. I mean, he had an answer at the ready immediately, uh, to which stymied them. Well, now Jesus, in effect, says, if you want to play that game, I too have a gotcha question. And they failed miserably to answer him. The synoptic parallels to Matthew twenty-two forty-one through 46 are found in Mark 12, 35 through 37, and also Luke 20, 41 through 44. So Jesus answered all their questions handily in a way that reduced them to silence and marveling. But they couldn't answer the single, the one and only single question that he put to them. It's really a win-win for Jesus, both on defense and offense, all the way. I mean, if you're a religious leader at this point, it was really quite embarrassing. He made them look foolish. Well, we now continue the narrative that relates to the temple controversies by picking it up at Matthew 22 and verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them. So they're continually huddling up on this day in the background, trying to figure out their next move. And uh, we saw them gathered together in verse 34, and now we see them again gathered together in verse 41. So again, they're huddling up, trying to figure out their next their strategy, their next move, trying to entrap Jesus. And as they were gathered there, Jesus presents a two-part counter-question to them. It's now his turn. Verse 42, saying, what do, you, what do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. I mean, this is an easy softball question, Right? So Christ, in an effort to get people to think, often framed the discussion through a thought-provoking question. The phrase, what do you think, was really a sort of a test to see if they were really thinking deeply in terms of the revelation of God. No, Jesus presents a question that was really ultimately about him, 
But he does it in an indirect way. I mean, it's ultimately about him since he is the Christ. But it was stated in an indirect way. Uh, he asked generically what they thought about the Christ, namely, whose son is he? Now, uh, it's interesting, uh, you know, the translations, uh, we got Old Testament, New Testament. Messiah is the Old Testament word. <clears throat> it means anointed one. Uh, Christ is the New Testament, the Greek, it's translated into our New Testament. Uh, it's, it's Christ. So Messiah, Old Testament, uh, Christ, New Testament, and the meaning is anointed one. And we see this, for example, for, uh, John 1, 41, he found his own brother uh, Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. Messiah, Old Testament, translated Christ in the New Testament. The idea of anointed one in the Old Testament referred to one specially chosen by God to serve in a special role, such as a priest, a prophet, or a king. Uh, they were all anointed ones, but the special coming one was to be the ultimate, the anointed one, the special chosen one. He would be anointed not with oil, but uniquely with the Holy Spirit. This special chosen one would come both as a deliverer and a reigning king. The religious leaders had asked penetrating questions about the great debates of the day regarding taxes, regarding the resurrection and the great commandment. But Jesus asked them what has been termed the all-important question or the most important question in the world. You see, Jesus here put his finger on the central most important issue developed in the Gospels during the course of his earthly ministry. At core, the Christian religion centers in on the person of Christ. And everything builds on this. Get this wrong, and you have it all wrong. The religious leaders brought up topics related to religion, how it intersects with politics. They brought up matters of the law. But Jesus' question was about the Christ, who is the center of all things. Thus, they dealt with secondary questions, <clears throat> but Jesus focused on the ultimate issue. The Pharisees immediately responded that Christ is the son of David. And in this, they were right. At least half right. Son of David was the most common messianic title used of the coming Christ during the time of Christ. The Jews commonly knew that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. And in this they were right. They knew that God had promised David a son who would sit on his throne and have an enduring kingdom. They knew the long psalm, Psalm 89, which involves at great length presenting God's covenant promises to David and his seed involving a throne and a kingdom. They knew this. They knew of Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 16, Isaiah 55, all which promised a special coming one that would sit on David's throne. I was all over the Old Testament. They knew full well of God's promise in Jeremiah 23, 5 to raise up to David a king who would reign supreme. It was everywhere. They knew this. <laughs> it's a softball question. It's the son of David. 
And there were many other intersecting references with David that showed the Messiah would be a descendant of David. I mean, this is where the book of Matthew, written to the Jews with the Jews in mind, that's where it begins, right? I mean, yeah, very first verse. Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Yeah, the son of Abraham. Take it back further to Abraham. I mean, the father, ultimately, of, of the Jews. It starts God building a special nation with him. And, and then through Isaac and Jacob, and, you know, we know the story. But then, specifically, the, the throne promise through David. This one who's coming to reign is going to be the son of David. He's going to sit on David's throne. Uh, that throne that's going to be an eternal throne. During Jesus' earthly ministry, the people were consistently either affirming Jesus to be the son of David or musing about whether or not he was the son of David. They were trying to sort it out. For example, we saw in Matthew chapter 12, verse 23, and after all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Could this be the one? Could this be the son of David? I mean, they weren't convinced, but they're, they're wondering about it. At the time of the triumphal entry, the multitudes cried out, Hosanna to the son of David, which caused the Pharisees in dismay to cry out to Jesus to rebuke them for saying this. This was followed up by the children in the temple crying out, Hosanna, which means save now, to the son of David, which caused the chief priests and the scribes to be indignant. So all these religious leaders knew full well the messianic talk surrounding Jesus and that many were entertaining the idea that he was perhaps the son of David. So when he asked this question, there's a lot of background here. And it personally applied to Jesus. And they knew it. They had really to have known that Jesus was indeed a descendant of David. John MacArthur writes, until the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, meticulous genealogical records of all the Jews were kept there. No one could hold a position of responsibility in Israel whose genealogy was unverified. It is therefore certain that the authorities had carefully checked Jesus' genealogy and discovered that his descent was from David was legitimate. Otherwise, they would simply have exposed him as having no claim to Davidic heritage and all discussion about his possible messiahship would have ended. It was for this reason that the Messiah really had to come on the scene prior to the destruction of the temple. Because otherwise, there would have been no way to verify his genealogical qualifications to be the Messiah. They had the right answer, but they didn't understand the full truth of it. As someone as well said, a half-truth when presented as the whole truth, becomes an untruth. Exactly. They were thinking in terms of the Messiah, purely in terms of being a man, a human descendant of David. And they were right in this. But he was more than that. He was also divinity. He was also God. So he said to them, how then does David, verse 43, how, how then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, here's the follow-up question. 
They knew Jesus had been heralded as the son of David. And Jesus now asks, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Now that was a mouth stopper moment coming straight out of the scripture from Psalm 110. Henry Morris says, with a single word, Lord, Christ silenced the Pharisees. This word, Lord, was a showstopper for the Pharisees. You see, they always assumed that since the Messiah was to be a descendant of David, that of course he would merely be a human and nothing more. But now Jesus drops the L word into the equation, the word Lord. And he does so in such a way that these Pharisees can't argue with it and they don't know what to do with it. And the same is largely true to this day among Orthodox Jews. Dan Bergman, writing for the Jewish Awareness Ministries, quotes this from an authoritative Jewish source. So this is written from a, from a Jewish source. Messiah will be a great political leader descended from King David. They still agree on this, Orthodox Jews. Often referred to as Messiah ben David or the son of David. He will be versed in Jewish law, observant of its commandment. He will be a charismatic leader, inspiring others to follow his example. He will be a great military leader and will win battles for Israel. He will be a great judge who makes righteous decisions. But above all, above all, he will be a human being, not a god, demagogue, or other supernatural being. That's orthodox Jewish thinking today. Yeah, he's going to be this special person in all these different ways, but he's just going to be a human. That's it. And right there, my friends, is the rub. The Jews to this day do not recognize Jesus as Lord God. They have completely missed the twin truths that, yes, Jesus is the son of David, which accounts for his humanity, but he is also the son of God, which accounts for his deity. They should have seen this from the Old Testament scriptures, that the Messiah would be a combination of human and divine, that is, fully man and fully God in one person. Should have seen this. I mean, it's pretty obvious, certainly now for us looking back on it. Jeremiah 23, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David. So clearly, coming from the line of David, a branch of righteousness, a king, so this king is coming from the line of David, shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. That certainly his humanity is seen here. The line of David, a human descendant of David. But verse 6 continues the thought. In his days, Judah will be saved and all Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name. This is who he is. This is his name. His name is his person by which he will be called the Lord. That's Yahweh. The Lord, our righteousness. This is his person. This is a very clear text tying the Messiah to the human ancestry of David. And yet at the same time, clearly saying he would be the Lord. This is a major theme in the Gospels. Matthew builds to the climactic question, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Which was followed up by Jesus directly asking the disciples, but who do you say that I am? This is the great issue. 
Who is Jesus? And then Peter, under inspiration, gives the right answer, saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, here at the very conclusion of his earthly ministry, I mean, we're at the last week, the last round of interrogation by the religious leaders. In this climactic context, in this showdown with the religious leaders, Jesus Christ once again makes the issue of who the Messiah is as the son of David. And he's emphasizing that he is the Lord. He is the Lord of David. He is David's Lord. This is the great issue, by the way, in the Gospel of John, the Gospel of Belief. The book by, begins by emphasizing that Jesus is God. Then presents the seven I am statements, showing that Jesus is the eternal I am. Coming to the climax, the climactic illustration of doubting Thomas when he saw the risen Lord saying, My Lord and my God. Followed by the purpose statement. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who is God. And the believing you might have life in his name, who he is. I mean, this is the major point in the Gospel of John. This issue of who Jesus is, is no minor deal in the scriptures. And yet so much of evangelicalism has really bought into a, what I call, lordless gospel. That correctly emphasizes the finished work of Christ, but is very weak on the person of Christ. Little do they seem to realize that the gospels first and foremost develop who the person of Christ is, and then building on that, present the all-importance of his once and for all finished work on the cross. They are both all-important, who he is and what he has done for us in his completed work at the cross. Paul, in presenting the most systematic presentation of the gospel found in the New Testament, begins by emphasizing this dual reality of the person of Christ as the starting point. Notice what he says in Romans chapter 1, 3 and 4. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. So right there in verse 1, you have both the Lord, our Lord, but born of the seed of David, his humanity. And declared to be the Son of God. How? With power, according to the Spirit of Holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. So he is born of the seed of David, and he is declared to be the Son of God in the resurrection. This is the starting point of the gospel, to which Paul says he was separated in keeping with the Holy Scriptures. And this is where the Bible ends. In the final finale, in the last chapter of the Bible, Jesus signs off, in effect, in this way. Revelation twenty-two sixteen. 16, I, Jesus, I know who's talking here, I have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root, that is the source, as God. I am the root and the offspring of David, the human descendant of David. So he's the root, he's the source, God, but he's also the human descendant. 
the bright and morning star. Thus, the Bible totally harmonizes around this dual theme that the Messiah is, at the same time, the human descendant of David, and he is also his divine Lord. Now, all the Jews recognize Psalm 110 as a messianic psalm. There was no debate here among the Pharisees. And Jesus, in effect, reminds them that David said this in the Spirit, meaning it was inspired by the Spirit. It wasn't like David just came up with this on his own. It was in the Spirit. It was the Spirit inspired this. And thus, it was the authoritative Word of God. And again, they could not argue with this. As it was the established position in Judaism, certainly among the Pharisees, that Psalm 110 was a messianic psalm inspired of the Lord. So all the Pharisaic uh, scholars concurred with this. And so the Lord quoted verbatim Psalm 110, verse 1, which, of course, they all knew very well was a messianic text. Verse 44, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Again, this is Psalm 110, verse 1, which is most prominent, the most prominently quoted psalm in the New Testament. Uh, Barry Davis, I won't read all of this, but Barry Davis, Psalm 110 is the most frequently quoted or referenced psalm in the New Testament. This is a major reference point. New Testament authors directly cite Psalm 110, verse 1, regarding my Lord sitting at the right hand of the Lord, in, and he gives all these references, and they also allude to it, more references, and the author of the book of Hebrews quoted Psalm 110, verse 4, in affirming the Lord is of the priestly order of Melchizedek. And he made a general reference to the psalm in Hebrews, and he lists the references there. So you can see it's quoted all over in the New Testament, and he lists extensively uh, where it's quoted. Well, what Jesus is establishing here is that David himself recognized the Messiah, the son of David, as Lord, as his Lord. How can it be that the Messiah is David's son and at the same time David's Lord? There's the riddle. This is the conundrum. Now we know the answer. It's simple. You can get it in children's moment. It's not that difficult. But they didn't get it. We know the answer is that Jesus is both human and divine at the same time. He's both man and God in one person. Thus, he is the most unique person in the history of the world. Totally unique, which is in perfect accord with the prophetic scriptures. Here's literally how it reads in Psalm 110. Verse 1, a psalm of David, the Lord, that's Yahweh, that's the most sacred name for God in the Old Testament. Uh, the Lord Yahweh said to my Lord, Adonai, another title for God, another name for God, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, every Orthodox Jewish scholar, certainly from in the, in the scribes and with the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, recognized this as God, Yahweh, addressing Messiah as Lord. In the scriptures, there are three primary names for God, the Old Testament scriptures. There are more than this, but uh, these are the primary names. Put them up here for you. Elohim, which means supreme, higher being. Yahweh, eternal, unchanging God. 
synonymous really with I am, just is. Adonai means master or sovereign master. Now in Exodus 20, verse 7, when God commanded, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, the name Lord there is Yahweh and God is Elohim. So very literally it reads, you shall not take the name of Yahweh, your Elohim, in vain. Now the Jews took this very seriously to where they didn't even want to pronounce the sacred name Yahweh lest they use it in vain somehow, inadvertently. And so instead of using God's name Yahweh, when they would come to the text and it said Yahweh, they would insert Adonai. They would read Adonai instead just to make sure they didn't use God's name in vain. They took that very seriously. By the way, using God's name or the Lord's name uh, in, a, in a profane or a common way, uh, just as a filler word or uh, irreverently, is using it in vain. I mean, the whole society you know, constantly, oh my God. You know, it's like, okay, you're using God's name in vain just constantly. Oh, Lordy, what? I'm just, wow. This, is, this was so seriously taken by the Jews, they wouldn't even pronounce the name. And we flippantly just throw God's name, the Lord's name. Please, watch out. Be very sure that's not okay. Even though many professing Christians seem to be oblivious to it. But here is my point. When the Jews came to a scripture that had the Hebrew name Yahweh, they would insert Adonai instead. So yes, they were still speaking of God, but they were using kind of a secondary name as they saw it for God, Adonai, instead of the sacred name Yahweh. Now, Adonai is translated as Lord in English. The word Lord means master, and it can be used of an earthly master as one who uh, is a superior and has authority over you. But it's also used of God who is the master over his people. And that is how David used it here. Uh, let's see here. A little more word study. Adonai, uh, the Hebrew, uh, is, uh, it's, he, it's a Hebrew word, and it means master. Uh, and uh, bringing that across into the New Testament, you've got kurios, which is the Greek word, also meaning master. Uh, and so it comes across Lord in English, which means master. Uh, David, under inspiration, said that Yahweh, referring here to Father God, said to my Lord, literally, my master, everyone thought that the descendant of David would be in a lesser position of rank than him, because after all, he would descend from him. He would be a descendant. But here David, in the Spirit, calls the Messiah, my Lord. How could it be that this descendant would be superior to him as his master, as his God master? Well, there are hints right here in the text. For one thing, David, under inspiration at the time he was writing, recognized that his Lord, the Messiah, was already in existence. As he says, my Lord, present tense, David wasn't addressing a non-entity. No, he was already in existence, and thus already right then was recognized by David as my Lord. This recognizes the pre-existence of the Messiah, 
as one who was existing prior to being born in the world. And this, of course, harmonizes with the progressive revelation that shows Jesus as Lord is eternal God. Well, the language of Psalm 110 verse 1 is revealing. The Messiah as the son of David would have to become a human. Son of David implies he's a descendant of David. He's a human descendant of David. Well, how does this son of David, as a human being, arrive at the seated position at the right hand of God prior to the time of his enemies being put under his feet? I mean, that's another conundrum. How does this happen? He's the son of David. It's already established he's the son of David. And now as the son of David, he is seated at the right hand of, of the throne of God. And yet in that position, he's still got enemies down here who haven't been put down. How does that all work? Well, you know what this requires? This requires the truth of the incarnation. Him becoming a human, the son of David. And it requires the truth, as we follow the story through, of a resurrected son of David who goes to sit at the right hand of God and the enemies are still not put down. So as we follow the story through, we see that he is exalted to the right hand of God as the God-man in the resurrection. And we read about this in lots of places. For example, Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him as the God-man and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the resurrection, Christ has been greatly exalted as the God-man. As God, he was always in that exalted position. But now as the God-man, as the Messiah, as the son of David. This is where Jesus as the Messiah God is right now. In the resurrection, he was seated at the right hand of God, waiting. He's waiting there. He's just waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. The right hand is the highest position of honor and authority. How long will he be seated and waiting there? Well, we don't know the time frame. But this waiting time corresponds to where we live right now in the church age. How will his enemies be made his footstool? With great power and authority. Christ is going to one day deal with them. This will happen in the day of the Lord judgment. When God humbles the whole world under the lordship authority of Jesus Christ. The world is mocking and they don't care about Israel. They don't care about the Bible. They don't care about the church. They don't care about the things of God at all. No regard. But we know where it's headed. We know the book. At his second coming, he will crush all of his enemies under his feet, and will set up his kingdom and reign forever. In the Old Testament scriptures, when a king defeated an enemy, he would call for the defeated ruler to be brought before him. And then he would put his foot on the neck 
of this vanquished enemy as if he were a footstool. It was a picture of complete subjugation. And this is what is going to happen to Christ's enemies. They are going to be put under him in humiliating defeat. This is what Christ is waiting for to happen right now as he awaits at the Father's right hand. It hasn't happened yet, but it's coming. Right now, in grace, judgment is being held back. This, my friends, is the age of grace. This is the church age. The invitation is going out. Judgment day is coming. Respond to the truth of who Jesus Christ is as Lord and Savior while you have the opportunity. Now is the accepted time. The door of grace is open. But judgment day is on its way. We live in the church age. In Hebrews chapter 10... But this man, speaking of Jesus Christ, the God-man, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever. I love that. One sacrifice for sins forever. I mean, this is a permanent, one-time, full payment for, for the full price of sin. Offered one sacrifice for sins forever. Sat down. Where'd he sit? At the right hand of God. He sat down because this work was done. His payment for sin work was done. He sat down. And what's he doing there? Well, again, quoting from Psalm 110. From that time waiting, he's waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. So here's where we are. Right now, uh, we're in the church age. Christ died on the cross. He went back to heaven. And he is seated right up there at the right hand of God the Father. And we're in the church age, the age of grace. And he's waiting uh, till his enemies are put on his footstool. The next great event on God's prophetic calendar, he's, he's building a special forever family called the church. Jew or Gentile, whoever uh, comes to Christ. And when that church family is completed, he's going to take us out of the world. And then he's going to begin a process of judgment in which he takes the world back. And it's going to climax at the second coming as he comes in power and great glory, smashing all of the enemies, putting them under his feet, and he's going to reign in the, in the kingdom, the millennial kingdom, and then uh, segue to the eternal state. So this is where we are. Right now he is seated. But one of these days he's going to get off that throne at the right hand of God, and he's going to come, and he's going to make his enemies his footstool. God right now is allowing the hostility of these enemies to still be in place at present. You say, how in the world are these people getting away? It's the grace of God. But no doubt, make, have no doubt, he is about ready to put his foot down on them. It's just a matter of when. Now, how glorious that Christ as the God-man is now seated. As Hebrews calls him, our brother, our great representative, is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. We have a human representative at the right hand of God the Father, the Son of David. And we should take note of what Christ has promised to overcomers in the church age. I don't know about you, but I get kind of excited about this. And you should, if you've got any, you know, thing working up there. Uh, Notice what it says here. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Can you imagine? Uh, 
it's really hard to fathom. As I also overcame and am sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And who are these overcomers? Well, we don't have to wonder too much about that. 1 John 5, 4 and 5. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This has put you in a position of overcomer. Born of God, born again. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. How do you get there? Our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? Question. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the great issue in the context of Matthew 22. They refuse to recognize the Lordship of Jesus, who is Messiah, the Son of David. Overcomers believe on Jesus as the Son of God, which is to say that he is God who shares in the very nature of God. Verse 45, he continues. If David then calls him Lord, here's the question. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Here's the ultimate question. If David called the Messiah, the son of David, Lord, then how is he his son? How can that be? How can both be true? How can the Messiah be David's descendant and at the same same time be his Lord master? His God master. The answer, of course, as we've already said, is that as God, Jesus was David's Lord. And as a man, he was David's son. No problem for those who properly understand the scriptures and harmonize them correctly. Now, Jewish scholars were often conflicted when it came to the Messiah. You see, they studied the Old Testament scriptures and they knew that certain places in the Old Testament scriptures predicted a suffering Messiah. But they also saw him portrayed as a reigning Messiah. So they couldn't understand how could both be true in one person. So they assumed, no, that's not possible. There must be two persons, two different messiahs, one suffering, one reigning. But again, putting the full picture together, we see that Jesus is both God and man in one person. Born a human being in the line of David, he could suffer and die, which he did. As Lord over all, he arose again and will one day reign over the world. So not only did they not see the dual nature of Christ as the God-man, they also didn't see there were two comings, which is required, by the way, with him being seated as the son of David at the right hand of God, waiting for his enemies to be put under his footstool. Requires first coming incarnation. He has to become the son of David in the flesh. And then how does he get seated at the right hand? Well, that requires a resurrection, That's where he is right now, and the rest of the story is yet to unfold. In his first coming, Jesus came to suffer and die. He was the suffering Messiah. In his second coming, he will come to reign and set up his kingdom. It all fits perfectly in the person of Jesus as we consider the whole counsel of God. Now, the issue of who Jesus is as the God-man became a major, huge issue in the early church. Athanasius was a bishop in Alexandria who lived from 295 to 373 A.D. 
He was the good guy who stood for sound doctrine. He had a theological enemy by the name of Arius, who was an early heretic, who in those early days became known as the arch-heretic. Now, Arius made famous in the Roman Empire among professing Christians this saying. Arius was famous for this saying. There was a time when the sun was not. And he was a songwriter. He wrote a little ditty. And I think it was probably in Latin, but it went something like this. By the father he was begot because there was a time when he was not. A cute little jingle. Let's all sing it. Thus today we know Arius as an arch heretic because he denied that Jesus was eternal God. He denied that. In contrast was Athanasius who would not compromise on the person of Christ being eternal God. And he fought like crazy over this. We, we really need to appreciate this guy. Athanasius. He was put out of his church five times over this issue. Arius became the most popular theologian. He was fighting against everything, completely against the tide. At times it seemed like the whole world was following Arius. But Athanasius would not give up, even though it seemed like the whole world, even the whole Christian world was against him. But then, as these leaders in the early church began to study, this became a major controversial point, they began to study. And it became more and more clear that indeed, the scriptures taught that Jesus is eternally God. Eventually, the Council of Nicene was convened convened to address the era of Arianism. There were 318 bishops who were involved, and all but two voted to condemn and excommunicate Arius as a heretic. And out of this came what we famously know today as the, the Athanasian Creed. Athanasian Creed. And so here's what it says. And I'm just selectively quoting here. It's a long statement, actually. But uh, for the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. Perfect God and perfect man. This is the Catholic, meaning universal, faith, which except a man believe faithfully, he cannot be saved. They made it very clear, if you don't believe this, you're not saved. And that harmonizes perfectly with Jesus saying, if you don't believe I am, you'll die in your sins. Today, the most prominent heirs to the era of Arianism are Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. Both groups continue to teach Arianism, which says that Christ is not eternally God, but rather a created being. How serious is this error? Well, it's deadly serious, eternally deadly serious. Every well-versed Jew knew that God had told Moses His eternal name is I am. I am means to be. He just is. He is the eternal, unchanging God. I mean, this is what God said to Moses. When Moses says, what's your name? What shall I tell them your name is? Moses said to God, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, what's his name? Who is he? What's what's his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, 
I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial, that which I am to be known by and remembered by. This is my memorial to all generations. Big deal, big deal. I am is God's eternal name, showing that he is eternally who he is as God. This is God's eternal name by which he is to be remembered throughout all time to all generations. It is this name indicative of him being the eternal, unchanging God that Jesus used in reference to himself. You can understand why this was such a big deal with the Jewish religious leaders. If, if somebody stands up, imagine if I stood up as a human being this morning and said, you must believe in me as, as the eternal God. I hope you'd get your stones out and, and throw them at me. I mean, uh, of course, we're in the New Testament, so you probably shouldn't do that. But anyway... Uh, this is, what, this is what Jesus said in John 8, 24. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am, a lot, a lot of modern translations have added the word he there, but really, literally, if you do not believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. I mean, Jesus made it very clear. You have to accept me as the eternal God. Looking to you in the flesh. I'm the eternal God. That's the issue. The end of that same chapter, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I've been around a long time. I was, I was in existence before Abraham. Because I am. And I am is the eternal existent God. He's, I've always existed. Even before Abraham was, I am. What, what are you talking about? Abraham was 2,000 years ago. You're, you're, you're what, 30, 32, 33 years old? What, 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 what? What are you saying? They took up stones to throw at him. Blasphemy. He needs to die. This is what the Jews did to blasphemers. They stoned them. They took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Going through the midst of them. Right through them. This is supernatural stuff. Right through the midst of them. I don't think he was even ducking. You know, just walking right through the midst of them. And so passed by. Wasn't his time? One day I was talking to a young man who grew up in an evangelical home. And I asked him, who is Jesus to you? And he emphatically said with great confidence to me, he's my savior. So I pressed him. I said, but who is he? And we just kind of bounced out around. He didn't know what to say to that question. And so eventually he said, well, well, he's a man. And then I really pressed him. I said, was it anything more than a man? He did not know what to say. Yet everyone in his circles thought, sure, he was a Christian. And he thought so too. I assured him that if he did not know and believe in Jesus as his God, he was not saved. This was a new revelation to him. Here's the deal. 
You have to come to the knowledge of the truth about who Jesus is as Lord God and Savior. And you have to know the truth for yourself. It has to be personalized. You have to, from your heart, believe in the Lord. This is part of the gospel, who Jesus is. Yes, I have a reference. One of my favorite references for the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4, if our gospel, that's the subject, if our gospel is veiled, where people don't see it, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. They don't believe, they haven't seen it. And then he says, here's, here's what we preach. Here's the gospel we preach. We do not preach ourselves. It's not about us. But Christ Jesus, the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts. We have, God has enlightened. We have, by God's grace, been shown something. What is it? To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where do we see the glory of God? In the face of Jesus Christ. We have come to see the truth of who Jesus Christ is as the Son of God. True believers have come to see the truth of who Jesus is as Lord God. And we've also seen the glorious truth of who he is as Savior. 1 Timothy 2, 4 through 6, Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? Well, what is it? There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So the gospel truth is all about who Jesus is as the God-man and what he has done in dying for our sins and rising again. And so Paul sums it up very well in Galatians 2.20. We know this verse, great memory verse. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. that's, That's who he is as his person. This is the basis of my faith who loved me and gave himself for me. That's his work, what he did to save me, his cross work. So once again, in Matthew 22, at a very climactic moment in his ministry, Jesus focuses in on that key issue of lordship. Three times in our text today, this is the issue related to the Messiah. In verse 43, David in the Spirit calls him Lord. In verse 44, we have a quote from Psalm 110 in which David references him as my Lord. And again in verse 45, David calls him Lord. That's the issue here. No problem with son of David. Problem lordship. They had a problem with that. The great issue in Jesus' ministry was that of his messianic lordship. This is why, as I say again, the Gospel of John builds to the climactic illustration of saving faith, as seen in doubting Thomas, who upon seeing the risen Lord, saw him as, said to him, my Lord and my God, and Jesus said, you have seen and believed. This is what it means to believe in Jesus. Well, this was the key missing reality for the religious leaders in Israel. It was before the cross. Hadn't died for sins yet. You say, well, you're accountable for not believing that I'm dying for you. He made the issue of lordship. Then it becomes the issue of dying for their sins too. But at this point, he hadn't yet gone to the cross. 
They did not accept Jesus as the Messiah who is the son of David. And they did not accept his lordship. In short, they rejected Jesus as Messiah God, which is the all-important issue. Without believing on Jesus as Messiah God, no one can be saved. I agree with this quote from MacArthur. We cannot know Christ any other way than as Lord. And I would add Savior as well. Lord and Savior. Verse 46. And no one was able to answer him a word. I mean, shut them down. No one was able to answer him a word. Not a single word. You think they have something to say. Nothing. Nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. So humiliated. So much did he defeat them. They couldn't even say a single word. And no more questions, sir. Jesus had answered so profoundly and irrefutably that the religious leaders were completely shut down. Now, if you can shut religious leaders up, you have really accomplished something. And he did. All Christ's opponents had been silenced completely, totally. He shut down the chief priests and the elders, chapter 21. He shut down the Pharisees and the Herodians earlier in this chapter. He shut down the Sadducees. And then again, he shut down the Pharisees. They had no questions that Christ could not answer. But they had no answer to the question that he asked of them. This sets us up for that long chapter of Matthew 23. Jesus has patiently taken it, answered with profound, irrefutable wisdom, but now he is about to speak with blistering judgment that is some of the strongest language of judgment found in the scriptures as seen in Matthew 23. From that time on, they dared ask him no more questions. Instead, instead now, they were looking at a little different strategy. Yeah, a strategy of violence, which in a few short days would be carried out in the cross. Well, by way of application, someone once asked, if God became a man, what kind of a man might we expect him to be? Of course, we would expect him to be holy and sinless. We would expect him to do powerful and miraculous things that no one else could do. We would expect him to live and love on a level that no one else ever did. And we would expect that in his wisdom and teaching, he would be so profound as to have no peers. This, my friends, is exactly the kind of person we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was indeed the God-man unequaled in all ways. After saying these things regarding the Messiah being David's Lord... Mark 12, 37, this is, and the common people heard him gladly. However, the Pharisees in view here outright rejected Jesus as the son of David, who is also God's son. Consequently, they were in the position of being Christ's enemies and now await the day when they will be made his footstool. Such is the fate of all those who reject Jesus as Lord and Savior. Julian the Apostate was emperor of Rome from A.D. 361 to 363. And he was, at one point, he was, he was, as they say, an apostate. I mean, and he was very irreverent. At one point he said, quote, 
Jesus has now been celebrated about 300 years. Having done nothing in his lifetime worthy of fame, unless anyone thinks it a very great work to heal lame and blind people and exercise demons. And I might add this little detail. And he did it all in perfect accord with the prophetic scriptures. Well, one day Julian was severely wounded in battle. And initially it looked as though he might survive. But late in the evening, the wound began to bleed profusely. And he cried out his last words, You have won, Galilean. You know what? In the end, Jesus wins. He always wins. I mean, he won with all these religious leaders. And they came with a verbal confrontation. He won. In the end, Jesus is either our Lord and Savior, or he is Lord with his foot on our throat. But he's Lord. It all depends on what we do with Jesus in the here and now. No matter what, Jesus is Lord to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. In the end, Jesus always wins. Because he truly is Lord. The son of David is Lord. So let me ask you. Who is Jesus to you? That is the ultimate question set before every individual for time and eternity. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's stand and have our closing song. Christ is Lord, He is Lord.